Uh, the last, in our last class on hermeneutics before the break, I kind of thought afterwards that I'd gotten a little carried away in discussion of parts of speech and things like that, and I apologize if that was kind of dull. But what we're going to do right now is pick up, because we didn't finish that session, and talk a little bit more about some of those matters we were discussing. We talked about grammar, and I don't remember what the other one was before that. And now we're moving on to syntax, okay? Syntax is not money that the government takes when you buy cigarettes. <laughs> but that was bad, I know. That's an old one. Okay. Part of syntax, we were talking about grammar as being part of syntax. Now we're moving on to word order, okay? Word order is actually an important part of syntax. The problem with using word order in your study of scripture is that the significance of word order is different in different languages. Okay? In English, word order is extremely important. Tom ate the oyster and the oyster ate Tom have exactly the same words, don't they? But they mean something quite different. Because in English, we normally have the direct object at the end of the sentence. Now, in another language, word order might not mean all that much. The way Greek is constructed, for example, you can scramble the order of the words and still know, for example, what the direct object and the subject are, not by where they are in the sentence, but by the endings that are on the words. Now, here's an interesting one. Suppose I said, Tom the oyster ate. Well, just, just look at that. Even in English. Yeah, it comes out funny. This, yeah, this looks like Chinese translations you see on the web or whatever, right? But just, just look at this. You could make this mean three different things at least. Tom, comma, the oyster, ate. The oyster's name is Tom. Okay? Or Tom, the oyster, ate. Tom ate the oyster. Or Tom, the oyster, ate. The oyster ate Tom. Do you see it? it? It's a funny thing about English, and this is where we get a lot of our jokes. And now it's time for Andrew to tell his joke of the evening. Which one? About Davy Crockett. How many ears does Davy Crockett have? Stand up and say it louder. How many ears does Davy Crockett have? He has three. He has his right ear, his left ear, and his wild front ear. (laughs) Language is funny. Okay. Now... We'll talk, about, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about Bible translations, but there is some evidence of the significance of word order that comes through into English translations. You know, in the battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, at the end of it, the people cry out, The Lord, He is God. 
the Lord, he is God. Now, the fact that they say, the Lord, he is God, instead of saying, the Lord is God, is actually quite important. Because the question that was on everybody's lips is, who is the real God? And they yell out, the Lord, he is God, as opposed to Baal, he is God. Now, in some of your translations, they won't preserve it this way. In particular, the NIV likes to shove words and phrases around in a different order in order to make the sentences read more smoothly. Okay, when we, when we talk about different translations, we'll talk about the different philosophies of translation. But there are some places in the Bible where word order can actually be significant in your, in your studying of Scripture. They're not very common when you're using the English Bible, but it, it's worth mentioning. Okay? All right, now let's talk about lexicography. Can anybody guess what this is, or you may know? Okay, it's the study of definitions of words. It comes from the word lexicon. All right? Lexicography is simply the dictionary meaning of words. Now, when you're interpreting the Bible, interpretation is complicated by the fact that a given word can have more than one meaning. That fact is called polysemy. Semi is like semantics, meaning, and poly is many. So a word can have many meanings. For example, in English, the word boot can be something on your foot or the rear end of an Englishman's car, or what you do to a football. And there are probably other meanings for that, too. When you're studying scripture, you can't just look at a word and then go to a Bible dictionary and look it up and say, oh, I know what that means. Because it may mean two different things in two different places in the Bible, or it might mean seven different things in seven different places in the Bible. Okay, how do you tell which meaning is the one that works? Context. Look at context. Context is extraordinarily important. And since Scripture is the Word of God, and since God arguably is the best communicator there is, we have good reason to believe that the clues we need to determine the meaning of the Word in a particular usage will be there in Scripture. What just happened? Oh, stop that. <laughs> stop that. Sorry about that, folks. <laughs> I think it's demonized. Okay. Lexicography can get you into trouble in interpretation. Don't just look up the meanings of a word and pick the one that you like. How many of you have a copy of the Amplified Bible? Well, no, you can admit it. I, I used to have a copy of it. Okay. <laughs> I think I sold it when I was in seminary because I wanted the money. Um, the Amplified Bible is kind of neat because when it encounters a word that can have a range of meanings. It gives you all of the all of the meanings. Now, 
if you use this as a tool to give you a clue that you need to think carefully about which of these meanings is the right one, that's good. If you foolishly use this thing and say, oh, that word means all these things. There's all this richness there that I never saw before when I read the Bible. If you're doing that, you're going to get in trouble. Okay? So, use it the way it was intended to be used and you'll be all right. But it is not true that where the word flesh appears, it means raw steak, humanity, sinful nature, race, you know, or any of the other seven meanings of the word flesh in Scripture. Generally speaking, the meaning of a given word in a given context is one of the meanings that that word can take, not two or three or seven of them. Okay? So be careful with this. Okay. Let's go on. Let's talk a little bit more about this. Bad habits in lexicography. <laughs> Before I go on, how many of you have done word studies in the Bible? You know, where you get a concordance and you look up all the occurrences of the word um, self-control. And you just, you know, it appears in the book of Ephesians, it appears in the book of Hebrews, and you go look and you go study all this stuff about self-control. That's a good thing to do. Nothing wrong with it. That's a lexical study. But you want to be careful not to make a very common mistake when you're doing that. Don't assume that what a word means in one place, it means in another. Okay? It doesn't necessarily. Now, I wrote, I wrote my dissertation on the use of Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith in the New Testament. And one of the big questions is, what does faith in the book of Habakkuk mean? What does it mean in Habakkuk 2.4? Well, strangely, it means something that it doesn't mean very many other places in the Old Testament where that same word is used. One of the things that I had to demonstrate is that it means what I think it means, even though that's an uncommon use of the word. You know, there are some words, like the word flesh, it's used a lot by Paul. He uses it in a lot of different ways. Most of the time, it's a reference to the sinful nature. But there's at least one case where it means simply humanity. Just because there's only one case where it means that doesn't mean that it can't mean that only once. You see what I'm saying? Context is really important, so don't fall into the trap of assuming that what a word means in most places has to be what it means everywhere where that word appears. Does that make sense? And you're not talking about just the English word, right? You no, I'm talking about, about yeah, I'm talking about the original words. Okay, okay let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, most of us have computer Bibles. Do any of you still have like a Strong's Concordance or a Young's Concordance? Okay, you know about those, right? Strong's Concordance is great, and in fact, it has survived on into computer Bibles because Strong gave a number, to, a unique number to every 
Hebrew word and a unique number to every Greek word. And the great thing about his concordance is that you could look up a number and find all the verses where that exact Greek word appears, even though it might be translated by a different English word in a number of different contexts. Okay? When you're doing word studies, you need to be looking at the words and comparing them in the original language, and that's why Strong's is really useful. Okay? Now, does anybody here have an NIV concordance? Yeah, well, in the back of your Bible, or, or there's actually a, a printed NIV concordance. I recommend that you burn it. <laughs> okay? And it's not because I hate the NIV, although I'm not a great fan of it. The problem with the NIV concordance is that it's a concordance based on English translation. And they don't tell you how to know what the real Greek word is in that context. So it's a concordance of what the translators think the text means, not a concordance of what the original words are. Okay, so it's not a very useful tool unless you're interested in studying what the translators thought as opposed to being interested in studying what's really there in Scripture. Okay? And, and there may be other concordances like that, but I remember when that one came out, and I was really annoyed at it. Okay. Second bad habit in lexicography. Don't assume that where a word comes from determines its meaning. Okay, now one of the you know, very common misuses of this idea is where a preacher will say, you know, Scripture says that you have the power of God in you. And the Greek word for power is dunamis, and that's the word from which we get dynamite. So you have the dynamite of God in you. That's just stupid. It really is, okay? The word dunamis in Greek is much closer in meaning to the word dynamo. A dynamo is an old-fashioned word for an electrical generator. And a generator produces slow, steady, controlled, useful power. What does dynamite produce? Explosions that break things. Okay? Is the Holy Spirit in you going around like a hand grenade blowing people up? I hope not. You know, but you'll hear, have you, you've heard preachers say this, right? It's just stupid. Um, you can, you can even do, you can, another thing you can do is you can do word studies where you'll look at a word in Hebrew that appeared back in the book of Genesis and then it appears in the book of Daniel and those books are written approximately 800 years apart. And you say, well, there's a word back here in Genesis that this word here in Daniel came from, therefore the meanings must be the same. Well, it, that bird just doesn't fly. Just because words are related doesn't mean that the meanings have to match or that they really have to come from each other. Okay, what's the key to determining the meaning of a word? It's context. Okay? So just watch out for these errors. Go ahead. If you have to, I guess you have to. What about in Acts? Hmm. 
exploded. Well, that would be a metaphor. Exactly. Okay. Um, you know, and people understand metaphorical language. And there's no problem with that. Um, well, here's one. Okay. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, I can't tell you what, when I'm coming back, but wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all of Samaria and to the ends of the, ends of the earth. Okay? The word for witness is martyr. Okay? And since the word for witness is martyr, that means that Jesus was predicting they were going to die. What's wrong with that? Okay, we are we are all going to die. But does does the statement "You will be my dead people in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the rest of the world" does that make any sense? It doesn't. Now, what happened? The word martyr is a Greek word, and the history of the Christian church has shown that Christians often die for their faith. So the term martyr has come to mean in modern English someone who dies for his faith. But in Greek, the word martyr means somebody who sees something and goes and tells somebody else. Okay, It's what you do on the witness stand in a court of law. Okay, There's a very common error of... This, this is etymology, not entomology. You know what entomology is, right? The study of insects. This is etymology, the study of the development of the meaning of words. This is the etymological error. Don't assume that where a word comes from tells you what it means. Okay? All right. Hey, David. Yeah. For, for that, I'm not sure how many of them are. You say most of them or all of them are martyred for their faith. Why couldn't it mean both? Well... Because it doesn't. <laughs> well, because of the context. Okay? The context, Jesus is basically giving them a mission. And what we see in the book of Acts is not that they all die, but they all go and tell. So, your, your question is a great one. Okay? It really is. Um, John was a martyr, but he wasn't martyred. Yeah, that's right. As far as we know, John was not martyred. So, again, usage is important. And there, you know, what you pointed out is one of the ways that you know usage is actually to look at history. I mean, one of the ways we know the meaning of Jesus' statement is not just the immediate context, the paragraph in which it appears, but the history of these guys as they went out and did what Jesus said, This is, you know, when he said, this is what I want you to do. I knew that. I know you did. I'm sure you did, actually. But it was a great question. You made me look good. Thank you. Okay. All right. Good habits in lexicography. Pay attention to context. We've beaten that horse to death. Okay. Look for synonyms and antonyms and comparisons and contrasts. These things will help you to tell the meaning of a word in its context. Okay? All right. Now, how do you use grammar, syntax, and lexicography? Very simple answer. In the same way to use it to interpret any other piece of meaningful writing. 
basically, you all know how to do this. You read it, and you think about it. And you figure out what it means. I just gave you the whole of hermeneutics in two sentences. <laughs> read it, that's all, I guess it's one sentence. Read it, think about it, and see what it means. Okay? We basically know how to do this. A lot of the problem in hermeneutics is that we're lazy. And we either allow preconceived notions to force our thinking in a way that the text isn't going, or we just don't think deeply, or we just don't read enough of the passage. Okay, but if, if you take the time, you can generally understand things. Um, now, I made a couple of comments here. If you really need to dig into a text, and often you will to get as much as you can out of it, do it in a good literal translation. And I would suggest the King James Version, the New American Standard, or the New King James Version. I would strongly argue against the Living Bible or the New Living Testament, and I have some prejudice against the NIV even because of its style of translation. All right? We will talk about that later in this course. Some of you are shaking your heads. You know what I'm talking about. And others of you have no idea, but you will soon. Okay. All right. Important point. Never let grammar and syntax lead you to conclusions that go against the teaching of other clear passages of Scripture. If you find what you think is a contradiction between two parts of Scripture... The problem is you, not scripture. So go back and look again and you will generally find that there isn't a contradiction. All right. Enough talking about how to do it. Let's do it. Okay, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. First Timothy 2, chapter 5, uh, verse 15. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. But women will be saved through childbearing. I'm just reading a lot of different translations. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with pr propriety. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. But she will be delivered through childbearing if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and chastity and holiness with sobriety. Have you ever been baffled by that verse? Good. If you weren't baffled, I wouldn't have anything to teach you here. Okay. All right. Well, let's look at the context. Okay. Where does that verse appear structurally within the book of 1 Timothy. Okay, it appears at the end of chapter 2. Very good. Now, I'm going to pick on you, Andrew. Are the chapter divisions inspired? They're not. Okay? But they often make sense. Okay? Well, Andrew says that they appear at the end of chapter 2. If you look at the beginning of chapter 3, does it look like there's a change to a different topic? Yes. It does, doesn't it? Okay? So, 
that probably means that the context that's going to help us understand the meaning of this verse is where? Before it. Okay? Now, what I want you to do for the next two minutes is read. Just read. Okay? Read the context that comes before that. You may want to start at the beginning of the book. Just read. And I'm not going to do anything until the two minutes are up. Just read in your own Bible. Okay, it's been two minutes. What's the first step in studying your Bible? That's not a step. Read. Okay? First step is to read. How many times do we open our Bibles and look at a verse and say, what does that mean? When we haven't read. Okay, so you've done some reading. You've done the first step. All right, what's the next step? Think about it. Before you think, actually, I mean, you can't help thinking. But you remember the, you remember the three basic steps in Bible study? Observe, interpret, and apply. Okay? Let's observe. What do you, what do you see there? First question. What, what body of text does 2.15 belong to? You know, what, what chunk of text sort of treats the general topic of which 2.15 is a part? Okay. Okay. Well, this is an interesting thing. Some people are saying 9 through 15, and Bob, you're saying we need to go earlier. Okay, okay. I would, I would go even wider myself. The wider you go, the less likely you are to be in error. But the wider you go, the more time you have to take to study. Okay, so there's a trade-off. 
right? I would suggest that it's the whole of chapter 2. Anybody have any idea why I'm saying that? Okay, therefore I exhort. Who said that? Okay. Good observation. Okay. Paul is is making a general statement about the way believers should live. Okay? And notice that he goes on and he says, verse 2, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, many of you said verses 8 through 15 or 9 through 15 are the key context, and I think they are the immediate context. But if you go back a little earlier, I think that these verses are telling how to live a peaceful and quiet life in all reverence. So in a way, it goes back to the beginning of the chapter, doesn't it? The instructions that Paul gives in that paragraph from 8 to the end of the chapter is a lot of what it means to live a peaceable and orderly life. You know, what are men's and women's roles in the church? Can you see that? Okay. All right. Other observations. So we we know we need to work within chapter 2, and we particularly need to work within these verses. Okay. What else do you see about 2.15 or things in the context that would bear upon it? Okay, all. Where do you see all? Uh, okay. Wait a minute. Tell, give me give me a number, a verse number. Okay. Okay. Good. Six. All right. So, what are you saying? You know, those words all there. They're saying that what what Paul is saying is not just for a tiny group of people, is it? These are general things that should be true in the church. At least some of these things that he's saying. Okay. Um, all right. What else do you see? Okay. So we've got all. What else do you see? The idea of quiet. Okay. At least three times. All right. Now, what you're observing, uh, observing, what you're observing here, that's good. What you're observing here is that repeated words tell you a lot about what's going on, don't they? We've got quiet, we've got peaceable, we've got reverence. Um, go ahead. You have, in the first one, you have, first of all, I urge you, so that's something he's urging. Okay. And in eight, you have a break where it said, I want the men, etc. Okay. And in nine, it's, I want the women. Okay. Did you catch that? The chapter begins with an exhortation, and in eight and nine, he gets specific. In eight, he speaks about men. In nine, he speaks about the women. Do you see any more stuff about men and women? Greg, go ahead. Okay, oh, there's, a, there's a good one. Okay, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. I'm going to be the devil's advocate. 
what we have here is Paul's opinion about how people should behave. Therefore, it doesn't apply to us because he says, I urge. What's that? Great answer. Okay, so draw the conclusion. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. Is it this? Is it this book where Paul says, "And we have no other practice in the churches"? Or is that Second Timothy? Is it this book? Is that Corinthians? Okay. But there, I think it's in here, but I don't see it. Okay, but I think I think Bob is has hit it on the head. Paul is a messenger of God, so when he says, I exhort this, that does not mean that this is his personal preference. It has no authority. Mary. Well, there's a good question. Should we understand the word men in verse 8 as referring to human beings in general or to the male sex? Okay. Okay. Alright, so what are you seeing there? Remember we were talking a little while ago about the lexical meaning of words? Is it not true that the lexical meaning of man can just be people in general? So why do we say here that it's not people in general? Because of the context, and what in the context? Wait, wait. Okay. Well, we, we've got all, meaning all people, but then we've got a distinction, right? We've got men versus, and I don't mean in competition with, we've got men versus women. There is a contrast, isn't there? And it's a very deliberate contrast. Well, it seems like uh, verse 7, uh, where he asserts his authority, is also a barrier between the use of the word men to mean all humans. Okay. Okay. So that first paragraph from 1 down to 7 seems to be more general, and the second paragraph seems to, to come down to specific roles for the sexes, doesn't it? Okay. Not always. The word on air, I believe, is the one here. And it can mean it can mean mankind or it can mean males. But you 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 have all pointed out the key thing here, okay? The fact that it, we've got a contrast. Men, women, men, women, men but women. Do you see it? It's all through that passage. It's telling us that we are making a distinction between the two sexes. Okay? Look more at 2.15. What do you see in 2.15 that might be helpful to us? Or just make observations. What do you see in that verse? How does it start? Nevertheless. Okay, nevertheless. Okay, there's a contrast. There's kind of a concession here. He's saying... Don't take what I'm saying too far because, you know, nevertheless is an interesting word. Okay? 
Now, if you see the word nevertheless, where do you have to look? Just before. You have to look before it, right? You got to look back. And that's probably one of the most important clues in understanding what he is saying here. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Keep looking at that verse. What do you see in there that's very strange? Okay, the she and the they. Isn't that bizarre? You would expect it to say, nevertheless, she will be saved if she can is you know if she continues, or nevertheless they will be saved if they continue. But it does say she and they. One is singular and one is plural. Now does that mean that Paul is a really bad grammarian? What does that suggest to you? What's that? Yeah. They must refer to somebody else than the woman who is being saved, whatever that means, in the context. At least that seems likely, doesn't it? Well, that's because it's a bad translation. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Well, I don't think that's a good translation either. It really is she and they. Uh, and I, I'm not. I don't like NIV. What does NIV have? NIV actually has women and they. Women and they. Does it have women? Oh, that's true. It's women, not they. Yeah. So it can be they. But it's really she and they. Yeah. I think it's talking about husband and wife because verse 14 says Adam is not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression, and so they both sin. So therefore, I think it's she and he, not equal they. I still want to understand how she is going to get saved for childbearing. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, Al has made a suggestion. I don't, I, I don't think that's the way it goes, Al. But, but what, what he's put on the table is, a, is a possible solution. Okay, if the she is the wife, the they might be the husband plus the wife. Okay, what's the problem with that? Why would the woman be preserved by by both their cooperative? Okay, yeah. Why would the woman be preserved by the cooperative effort of of she and her husband? Well, my defense is to continue on. It was she, Eve, who was deceived and fell into transgression. And so, the woman who goes there is something in the con. There is something in the context to 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 put that on the table. Um. But I think the solution lies elsewhere, and we'll have to look at more data to get there. Greg, you were going to say something? Well, childbirth isn't one of the curses. Painful childbirth and infant mortality are the curses, as I understand them. Yeah, and childbirth is not a curse at all. Um... Let me, let me throw out something that you need to think about. One of the biggest errors that people make 
in interpreting the New Testament is to assume that every time you see the word saved, it means saved from the destiny of eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Okay? We have turned this word into a technical term in a way that does not reflect its use in Scripture. Okay, if I, if I think it's the word sozo, and preserved is one of the meanings of that. What about safe? Kept safe? person out of hell. Okay? That's just not... If you do that, you're bringing something to the passage that is not necessarily there. Okay? The word save, the Greek word save, can mean rescue, it can mean protected, it can mean kept safe. There's generally an idea of the presence of some kind of peril and someone doing something to keep you out of that peril or the things that it could do to you. But it does not necessarily mean go to heaven versus go to hell. Okay, I think we can too, but why? word for it. I've given it to you before. If you don't remember, that's okay. It's the analogy of Scripture. The analogy of Scripture is the principle that says what is taught in one other portion of Scripture can't be inconsistent with what's taught here, and just the opposite is true. We should expect unity. So, if no other portion of the Scripture says you get saved by having babies, then that's probably not what this means. Alright, so if we throw that out, what do we have to look for in the context to make sense of the presence of this word? Well, okay. Some some people some people take it that way, but you know what? The people who take it that way are still trying to look for saved in the sense of not go to hell, but go to heaven. Remember what I said about the word saved? It has to do with the presence of some kind of peril or danger. Okay? Look in the context. Can you find some kind of peril or danger? Well, childbearing is a danger, but it's saying that you get saved by the childbearing, so that can't you can't be saved from the danger that saves you. What's that? Uh, deception is a possibility. There is a peril of deception. 
I don't think that's it, but that's a good possibility. You have to you have to think a little creatively, but I think it's there. When you read through this passage and it says, women must do this, men must do this, men may do this, women can't do this, what are you tempted to say? Women can't do a lot of things that you'd expect they want to. Okay. And that is going to do what to them? Okay. <laughs> it can be. It's going to frustrate them. All right. I, we're short circuiting this a little bit because of time, but what I want to suggest to you is that the context. If you look at the context, it's saying that men can do some things that women can't do, and yet at the end he says, nevertheless. Women will be saved by childbearing if they continue in such and such and such. Okay? Now, when you're reading that passage, you're going to say, well, men can teach men, but I can't. So I feel frustrated. I can't exercise my gift. Now, Paul didn't say that women can't teach women. He didn't say that women can't teach kids. I think what he's saying is that women are saved from the sensation that they don't have an important role because they have an extraordinarily important role. What is that? Not just giving birth, but look at the rest of the sentence and look at the she and the they. Yeah, yeah. Okay? I think he's saying that women are rescued from feeling that they don't have an important role because they have... The, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Okay? The woman has this extraordinarily important job of raising the next generation. And if she raises the next generation so that they continue in, what are the words? Um, faith, love, and holiness with self-control, you know what? She not only is not going to be robbed of the opportunity to make as big a contribution to the life of the church as the preacher or the elder or whatever makes, she's making a huge contribution that has enormous consequences. Is that a commonly held theory? That? That's one of the commonly held theories. Okay. Great. You know, you know, the Catholic Church cites this verse as uh, one of the reasons for the birth control. Sure. Yeah. And there, there's, another, there's another passage that says it is better to marry than to burn. And they would use that too. Okay? I would say that a woman who doesn't bear children, I don't know if they say it anymore, but there was a time when the Roman Catholic said, Church said that if you don't bear children as a woman, you're in danger of hellfire. Okay? That can't be the meaning here. Now, one of the other suggest I'm going to let you go on a minute. One of the other suggested interpretations of this passage is that the birth of Christ is what brings salvation to the human race. Okay? The problem that I have with that is that it seems to be way out of context and it doesn't make the sense of if they continue in holiness and faith and self-control. Um, I, don't, I don't want you to feel like I think that I have proved my position on this at all. But hasn't it been kind of interesting just to look at the evidence and sort of put some things on the table 
and see what's going on there. You know, you folks pointed out the nevertheless. You saw the differences between men and women. You saw the the she and the they. You know, we've struggled with the meaning of this verb save. Those are the kind of things that you need to do when you're trying to figure out what a passage means. Now, there's lots more to look at, and we don't have time to do it. And you can go home and you can continue this further, and you may see more that will either support the view that I've suggested or the other view, and there's, there's a third view. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. But do you see what's going on here? We're just trying to follow Paul's train of thought, and by making observations of the text, recognize possibilities of meaning that we might not have seen before, and then try them on and see how they fit. That's really what we're doing. That's what hermeneutics is. Um, any other observations or comments before we quit? And we're allowed to look ahead. Okay. If, if we could say that her reputation will be preserved and could be mm-hmm. childbearing, we can look ahead to verse 7 in chapter 3. Moreover, he must have good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach, which would be the opposite of good reputation, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, reputation is an important thing in context, isn't it? That, that's a good thing Al pointed out. In the qualifications for elders, reputation is important, and reputation is also important in the first part of this chapter, isn't it? It is saying that I want Christians to live in human society in such a way that they are viewed favorably by human society. I want them to be praying for the king. I want them to live peaceable lives. I want them to be known as good neighbors. So, reputation does seem to be on the table. Any other observations? Okay. It's late. Let's pray and let's quit. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and even grateful for the challenge of understanding the hard parts. Pray that you'd help each one of us to dig deeper and to think harder and yet to do that with the confidence that you will reward our efforts with a clearer understanding of your word and a a deeper understanding of you and your ways and how you would like us to live. Please protect us as we go home. Draw us close to you during the week and enable us to be the fragrance of Christ wherever we go. We pray this in his name. Amen.